In the following sermon recorded in the Westminster Chapel on the 3rd of July 1955, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 13. Unfortunately, the introductory remarks to this sermon are missing, and we join the doctor now as he's examining the reactions to Jeremiah's prophecy by the people of Israel. So he is like a man almost beside himself. He sees it so clearly, but they are absolutely blind. They persecuted him, they tried to silence him, they resented his message. They preferred the preaching of the false prophets who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that's the position, therefore. He sees it so clearly, and they are obviously still blind. So he comes back to them. He puts it in direct speech, he puts it plain, plainly and in an unvarnished, blunt manner. He tries pictures, images, arguments, uh, analogies. He's doing everything he can to bring them to uh, a recognition of the terrible calamity that's about to overwhelm them. And on he goes. Now in this 13th verse, which we began to consider last Sunday evening, he puts it again in a particularly clear and definite manner. You see, here having spoken to them and having reasoned and having argued, he, as it were, turns back to God and he addresses God. He offers up a prayer. Now, last Sunday night we looked at one side only of what the prophet says here in this address of his to God. We looked then at the positive side. And we did so because it's always right to start in that way. And in any case, we can't understand the negative which we are going to look at tonight unless we do have some clear conception of the positive. The uh, prophet's method at the moment is this. Having shown the possibilities to these people, having shown all that might be so true of them and for them. He then says, if you don't, if you don't accept it, and if you don't come to that well, then there's nothing left for you. That's the negative. And that's what we've got in this one verse. It is at one and the same time, therefore, a most amazing exposition of the greatness and the glory of God. And by contrast, it is one of the most alarming and thorough and clear denunciations and exposures of sin and its consequences which will be found anywhere in the Scripture. Now, it does sum up the entire doctrine of the whole of Scripture, in a sense, on sin and on men in sin. You see, it starts with God, Jehovah, the Lord, that eternal being in his self-existence, perfect in all his attributes, endless in his power, Jehovah, the Lord. Yes, and more, the hope of Israel. We traced the history, and the prophet presses that upon them, of what God had done to Israel, the whole story of their genesis, how he took a man called Abram and turned him into a nation. He had made a people for himself, He'd manifested his glory in that way, and he had always been their hope in time of trouble, the hope of Israel. And then 
that other great phrase that we spent our time on last Sunday evening, the fountain of living waters. There's nothing more glorious than that. Everything is there. Everything that needy men can ever need. Everything that weary, tired, sinful men can ever desire. It's all there. The fountain of living waters. The prophet turns to God and worships him and praises him and thus magnifies his great and holy name and his wondrous grace. But, and this is the whole tragedy, man doesn't recognize that in sin and that is the very essence of sin. That is really what is meant by sin. So he draws the inevitable conclusions from a failure to realize this blessed and this wondrous truth concerning God. And it is to that I must direct your attention this evening. God knows I'm not doing it from choice. I think I understand Jeremiah. You remember that there was a point in this man's ministry when he decided he'd say nothing. He seemed to be alone and a solitary vice. And people disliked it. They said, why don't you prophesy unto us smooth things like these others? Why do you keep on talking about sin? Why are you threatening us? Why are you so negative? Ah, they said, if you're only positive always, and simply gave us these great positive statements, how marvelous it would be. Why must you be different? Listen to the other prophets. Look at them. And poor Jeremiah, in a moment of depression, he decided that he'd say nothing that he'd just keep silent. But you remember he couldn't. The fire began to burn within him. The message was there like a fire in his bones. And he had to speak again. Why? Well, because of his heart of compassion. Because he loved his fellow countrymen. Because he wanted to save them from disaster. Because he saw what was coming. Because it was his desire to save them from it. And therefore at all risks, unpopularity, persecution, anything else, he says, I must speak, and he did speak. And that's what he's doing in this verse that we're looking at this evening. You see, mankind has become so impervious to the truth and so obdurate in the hardness of its heart that you can hold before it this picture of God as Jehovah and the hope of Israel and the fountain of living waters, and it says very nice, very pleasant, and does nothing about it. But the sudden realization of the alternative, the negative, has awakened many a man. So we give the negative this evening. I think I've told you before, the story of a man whose name was Thomas Gray, not the poet, another Thomas Gray, who was a miner, living a very godless and dissolute and unworthy life. An old minister in the district had often spoken to him when they met on the road and had tried to persuade him to turn to God. Thomas Gray wouldn't listen. Then one day came the sudden and the terrifying news that there had been an explosion in that particular mine where Thomas Gray worked at six o'clock that morning. And everybody thought that Thomas Gray was on that shift working in the mine. 
But during the afternoon, the old minister was taking a walk along the country road and to his amazement, who did he see coming but Thomas Gray? And when he met him, this is what he said to him, Thomas Gray, I thought you were in hell since six o'clock this morning. And that word, that simple word, was the means of bringing that man, Thomas Gray, to a realization of what he was doing and whether he was going. It was the turning point in his life. He saw uh, in a flash the vision of hell and realized that but for the grace of God he'd be there. And he became a saint and a preacher of the gospel. Very well, I say. Let us look therefore tonight at the negative. And uh, we'd, we look at it in terms of the positive that we've already been looking at in these glorious phrases. Now then, look at the, the character, the nature of sin. The first thing we find we are told about it here is that sin is always deliberate. There is this deliberate element in sin. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from thee or from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the fountain, the Lord, the fountain of living waters. They turn away, they forsake. Now, this is a, a very vital part of the biblical doctrine of sin. Man's resistance to God is not merely passive, it is always active. It is always positive. And that is something that we tend to forget. We don't like the doctrine of sin as a whole, as I've reminded you, but uh, having to admit that it's there, well, we say, well, it's just passive. It's just the absence of something. It's just that we are not godly or that we don't listen to God. But it doesn't stop at that. There is always this deliberate element in sin. It was obvious in the case of these children of Israel. They were God's people, as I've been reminding you, and they'd experienced his blessings. For them to get into this plight and into this position was the result of a deliberate act of turning away from God. They had come to the conclusion that the gods of the other nations were superior, that the religion of the other nations were better. And therefore they had deliberately turned from God and as he tells us they'd been building their groves on the top of the high hills and they'd taken their offerings there to their temples and they'd been making their gods out of wood and stone and precious metals. It was a most deliberate act. Ah, but the Bible would have us see that this is true of the whole of mankind. It was the original act of men, wasn't it, when he fell and when he brought calamity first upon himself. The sin of men at the beginning was most deliberate. He had dwelt with God and he knew God. Then the suggestion comes. Has God said? Is it fair? Is it right? And so on. And men accepted the suggestion and very deliberately he therefore turned his back on God, flouted God's commandment, and with deliberation he took of the fruit of that tree. There's no question about it. It was indeed a deliberate action. 
And as I understand the teaching of this book, that is always and everywhere true of men. We all have been guilty of this. Because we all of us born into this world have got a sense of God. The man who says that he is an atheist has got a sense of God within him. There isn't a man alive who hasn't got a sense of God. You can go to the remotest tribes and the most primitive peoples and you'll find they've all got this sense of this high God. It's in men, it's innate in men. Man has got a feeling within him that there is a God. He may represent him in various ways, but it's there. And what man does is to try to get rid of it. He tries to disprove it. He'll call in learning from every quarter conceivable. He'll use his imagination. He'll try to explain it away in terms of comparative religions, in terms of science, in terms of philosophy, in terms of psychology. He says it's a projection of something that's within you. There isn't a God. Ah, it's a projection of the child's fear of his father. It's a sort of animism. It's something primitive. He'll do his utmost to get rid of it because it's there. You see, that is the deliberate element in sin. Whether we like it or not, God is there and this consciousness of God is there. And we all of us have to fight against the consciousness and deliberately we set ourselves and pit ourselves and our minds against him. The Apostle Paul, as usual, puts it in a very clear way when he says that men are guilty of this. They are guilty of holding down the truth in unrighteousness. It's there, you see. The truth is there and it asserts itself, it presses itself upon us in so many different ways. And we deliberately try to hold it down as the result of sin and as the result of the fall. We've not only got this innate sense of God, all of us, different things remind us of him. The stories of men torpedoed during the war bring... The stories bring it out so clearly, don't they? Men who'd never thought of God for years and had never prayed. Suddenly they're torpedoed. They find themselves in a boat without food and without drink. And there they are drifting. What do they do? They begin to pray to God. Circumstances remind us of him. And there are so many circumstances that do it. When a man's taken ill, suddenly he thinks. When there's a death in the family, stands over an open grave. All these things remind us of God. And it's against all that consciousness and reminder of God that we have to rebel and turn deliberately in order to follow our own ideas and our own devices. Man in sin forsakes God. He turns away from God. He does it, of course, as the children of Israel did because he's confident that he's got something better, that he's improving himself that he is advancing his own cause and the possibilities for himself. Thus, I say, there is this deliberate element always in sin. But let me hasten to a second thing, which is the element of ingratitude in sin. For that is always there. O Lord, the hope of Israel, says this man Jeremiah, these people are forsaking thee. 
O Jehovah, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God, who has formed this nation and brought them out of nothing and elevated them amongst, amongst the nations, O God, who didst deliver them out of the bondage and the captivity of Egypt and give them a land flowing with milk and honey and subdue their enemies before them, O God, these people have forsaken thee, who art the hope of Israel the fountain of living waters. That's his way, you see, of pointing this element of ingratitude in these foolish people. He was very concerned about this and of necessity so. It broke his heart as he realized it that these foolish, deluded, benighted people could turn their backs upon one who had done everything for them and to whom they owed everything that was of value. But again, my friends, this is true of the whole of mankind. I ask again, wasn't it true of men at the very beginning? Isn't that one of the most terrible things about sin? Always. Isn't it there we have a glimpse of the enormity of sin? Look at men at the beginning in the garden. Look at Adam and Eve. They owed everything they were and everything they had to God. It was out of his own love that God had made them and had fashioned them in his own image and likeness. They owed their creation to him, the very gift of life and the very principle of life itself. And he had set them in paradise, in perfect conditions, in perfect surroundings. It was a life of pure and of sheer enjoyment without anything marring it or detracting from it. It was indeed an ideal life, an idyllic life in every respect. God had withheld no good thing and no blessing from them. He'd made men the Lord of creation and had put everything under his hand, as it were, and under his dominion. There is men in this amazing position of blessing. And yet, you see, he is ready to listen to and to accept that foul lie about the character of God. Don't you, you don't believe in sin? Well, tell me what made men do that. What is it that makes any man do that kind of thing? That's the thing that has made hell of this world. This base ingratitude. This turning away from a God who has been so good. If God had made men as a slave... If he'd set him in a wilderness with thorns and briars and diseases and pestilences and everything that was inimical to men's well-being, well, you could understand men believing the suggestion about God and his attitude towards men. But remember, it was in paradise men listened to the devil. It was in the midst of all this affluence and prosperity. It was under the blessing of God with the windows of heaven open and showering blessings day by day. It was there that men listened and fell and went down. Oh, the ingratitude of it all. But men in sin is still like that. 
Because all of us are in this world because of the goodness of God. Do you value life and being and existence? Where does it come from? You are not responsible. Nobody else is. Man isn't responsible. It is all the gift of God. Everything we have and everything we are and all we hold, they're all from God. And everything in life that is good. You were born when you were a child into a family. And you were surrounded by love and by tenderness and by affection and by care. How did that ever happen? Where's the family come from? Where did the idea receive its origin? You know the answer is that it's God who ordained it. It's God who ordained the family, not man. It's God who's appointed all these orders of society, like marriage and the family and the home and the unit of the nation and all these things. Every one of them has come from God. You look back across your life and pick out the things that have given you greatest pleasure and greatest joy and greatest happiness, all the best things in life and in the world, and you'll find that every one of them has come from God. Think of your health. Are you responsible for your health? Isn't it obvious and certain that if our health depended upon us, we all of us would be desperately ill? We break the rules even of nature and the laws of nature and of health, and in spite of it, God gives us health. Oh, let me sum it up in the gracious words of our Lord. He causeth his sun to rise on the evil and that on the good and sendeth his rain on the just and the unjust. That's God. And food and clothing and shelter and all these things, they're all given to us by God day by day. And there are men and women tonight cursing God and turning their backs upon him and trying to spit upon his name and desecrating his holy laws who are being blessed by him day by day and don't know it and don't realize it and never thank him for it. The ingratitude of sin. Ah, but it doesn't stop at that, does it? The world today, speaking generally, is not looking towards God. It's got its back turned towards God. It hates the very idea of God. It's trying to disprove the very being of God. It'll have nothing to do with God. He's only used as a term for cursing or for swearing. What has God done, I ask, to mankind? That mankind should thus treat God. Or let me use the language of the prophet Isaiah as he addressed this selfsame nation. Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? When did God cast you off? When has God been unfair to you, asks the prophet. And I can ask the same question with a still deeper meaning tonight. I ask, what is it that God has done to the world, that the world turns its back upon him and is not interested in him? Has he blasted us? Has he poured down wrath upon us? Has he muddled our lives? Has he worked against us? Has he robbed us of joys and pleasures? And has he just given us misery and wretchedness? And the answer to the questions is just this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
That's what God has done. Though men had fallen and had sinned, though the whole of the human race had rebelled against him, God didn't turn his back upon us. He still looked with a piteous eye, and he's even done this. He's taken his only begotten son, and he sent him down on earth. In the likeness of sinful flesh, it was God who sent him. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his own son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. He sent him for rebels. He sent him for sinners. He sent him for blasphemers. He sent him for all of us who have turned our backs upon him. That's what God has done. God so loved the world that he not only sent him into the world, but even sent him to the cross. He even took our iniquities and put them upon him and punished them in him. He smote him. He put him to death. That's what God has done. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he didn't even spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, delivered him to the shame, the mocking, the agony, the suffering, the cruelty, the vileness of that cross on Calvary's hill. God has done all that, that mankind might be redeemed. And mankind turns its back upon him. And forsakes him. And turns away from him. Am I being unfair when I say that that is base ingratitude? Oh, if men and women but realized what they did. That their spurning love so divine. And rejecting love so amazing. So divine. But let me hurry on. The next element is the blindness that is revealed in all this. And the blindness, I mean, to our own real good. I'm not going to stay with this this evening. That is just the negative of the positive I was giving, giving last Sunday night, wasn't, isn't it? If you see a man who is in a condition of semi-starvation, Suddenly offered a meal. If you see him deliberately turning away from it, what did you say about him? If a man in a burning house on the top story suddenly sees a fire escape sent up and he's simply to step onto it and he arrives in safety and deliberately doesn't, what would you say about him? Well, these are but pale and insignificant and unworthy images of what men in sin does with regard to God's salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. The fountain of living waters. And man goes about the world trudging and shuffling, thirsty, dying in his very boots as he goes along because of lack of life, 
and of vigor and of joy and of happiness and of peace and all the things we considered last Sunday night. Oh, the blindness of men to his own real good. Have you ever thought of it like that? Have you ever realized that men can be as blind as that to his own real good? That he forsakes the fountains of, fountain of living waters and turns for happiness and peace and joy to drink and to gambling and to lust and to passion and to the world's passing fashions and its excitement. My friends, it's lunacy, it's madness. It's blindness to our own highest interests. But let me come to the last thing, the thing that really is emphasized so amazingly in this particular verse, which is this, the inevitable consequence to which such action leads. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed and they that depart from thee shall be written in the earth. I say the inevitable consequence. That's what the prophet says. And of course it must be true and it must be inevitable in the light of all that he's been telling us about God. If what I've been telling you again tonight about God is true to turn away from God must lead to this end. What is it? Oh, may God give me the ability and the power to put this thing plainly and simply. And may we all see it. If you are not at this moment in Christ and belonging to God, if you go out of this life and out of this world in the same condition, that is the verdict. You will be put to shame. A day will come when you'll be utterly ashamed. And you will find that your name was only written in the earth, not in heaven. What's all this mean? Well, let me break it up just very briefly. All that forsake thee shall be ashamed. I say you can translate it if you like, put to shame. Or if you prefer it, you can translate it by the word confounded. It simply means this. That a day will come when the folly of every sinner will be revealed. It will be exposed. That's what we mean by being put to shame, isn't it? That's what we mean by being ashamed. That we are really exposed before other people. Our folly is manifested and it's revealed and we say, I felt terribly ashamed. It was obvious to everybody. There it is. That's what's going to happen to the sinner at the end according to the prophet and according to the, teacher of the, whole of the, the teaching of the whole of the scripture. In other words, if we don't realize this now, a day will come when we shall realize it. If Christ means nothing to us now, and we're rather proud of that fact, we are men of the world, and women of the world, we are not interested in this sloppy sentiment, and Christ, ah, we can't be bothered on the blood, we ridicule it and so on. 
There's a day coming when every eye shall see him. Yea, and they that smote him. And they'll be so ashamed and so terrified that they'll cry unto the rocks and to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us. Put to shame. Exposed before the whole universe as a fool. Ashamed. Exposed. Your nonsense revealed. It's going to happen. Or another way you can look at it is this. That at that time all that we've relied upon and which we thought was so wonderful will then be manifested in its true color and will be shown to be utterly useless and valueless. I can't imagine anything more terrible than that. We've all seen this, haven't we, on a small scale in life? We've known people who are rather impressionable and they've taken up some new idea. They've said, now this is the thing. And they've perhaps put all their money into it. They were going to make a fortune. In a few months, we tried to persuade them not to be foolish. We said, it can't be true. It's too good to be true. Ah, no, no, they knew it. They were certain of it. They said, I'll risk my all upon it. The man put all his savings right into it. Then the man who's misled him suddenly disappears and you meet the same man again and he doesn't look at you. He can't lift up his eyes. He's afraid to look you in the face. He's ashamed. Why? The thing he believed in and had put his all into it has been exposed for what it really was. There was nothing in it. It was pretense and sham and make-believe. He's been put to shame, poor fellow. And there's a terrible day coming in the history of the world when all who had given their allegiance to the world instead of to God are going to be put to shame. If you want to find a great and dramatic account of it, read chapters 17 and 18 in the book of Revelation where you find an account of the kings and the princes and the merchants and the great men of the world who had been flirting and committing their spiritual adultery with that great whore will suddenly be exposed and will see what they've been doing. The final exposure of it all. And those who rejected God and who rejected Christ for the sake of this world and its passing pleasures will see with open eyes their unutterable folly. Or you may look at it like this, that then they will be confounded. They're ashamed in that sense. And I think this is a very vital part of the meaning. This term is used very frequently in the Scriptures. He that believeth shall not be confounded, shall not make haste, shall not be put to shame. That's the term, and it means this. that those who do belong to God and to Christ are prepared for all that is coming. And therefore, when it comes, they'll not be surprised, they'll not be taken unawares, they'll have made provision and all will be well, but not the others. The others, you see, haven't believed this message and they've gone on living for the world. It suddenly vanishes and there they are. They don't know where they are nor what to do. The inevitable has happened. The thing they didn't believe has taken place. And they've made no provision. They're baffled, bewildered, beside themselves, hopeless and helpless, put to shame, confounded. We've seen people like that again on a smaller scale, haven't we? 
They wouldn't listen to the warnings, and then the thing happened, and they didn't know what to do. It was like that at the time of the flood. It was like that in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like that when the Chaldean army attacked Jerusalem just after Jeremiah's time. It was like that in A.D. 70 at Jerusalem. It'll be like that yet. When the Son of God comes back again in judgment. Put to shame. Yes, and this other thing before I close. A name written in the earth. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now this is a most important picture, this. It's a most terrifying description of all who... Uh, turn their backs upon God and do ridicule his salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a most devastating description of life without God. What does it mean? Well, here's the picture, you see. It's like a name written in the earth or on the sand. The name is written there. Now, that is the kind of life that is being lived by men and women who are outside God and who are outside Christ and his blessing. They've got a name, and sometimes it's a very great name, and there it is written or printed in the sand, and they say, marvelous, and the whole world looks on, and they say, wonderful, what a name, what a figure. Yes, but what the Bible says about that is that it's a name that is just written in the sand and in the earth. What does that mean? Well, it's essentially unstable, and it's insecure. I look at the name, yes, I see it quite clearly, but I come along the next day and I can't find it. What's happened to it? Well, this is what's happened to it. Because it's only written in sand, if a sudden gust of wind comes or a hurricane, it's simply obliterated. The sand is blown over it and the name is gone. Or perhaps during the night some animals came along and they just trampled it and it's vanished. You can't make it out. Perhaps even a little child with a bucket and spade came and he's obliterated it likewise. He's poured sand over it and it's gone. The great name. It's disappeared. Why? Well, it was only written in the sand. Essentially unstable and insecure in and of itself. That's the sort of life that men and women have and are living if their life is not under the blessing of God and of Christ. And the newspapers are full of such people. I have a sorrow in my heart for them. Their names are written, certainly headlines, front page, photographs, marvelous. How attractive to young people. How enticing it is to go in for a career like that, to become a film star or something like that with this blaze of publicity, this amazing notoriety, your name everywhere before the world. How wonderful, how thrilling. How unstable and how insecure. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. 
Another star arises, another rival comes. Or perhaps a disease, chicken pox, smallpox, and your good looks have gone. In a moment it's vanished, and your name is forgotten, written in the sand. These are the things people pride themselves on today, are they not? Their personal appearance, their faces, their figures, their deportment. These things that are so grand and great in the estimation of sinful men. Oh, how people live for them and dream about them and spend their money on them to have a name, to be spoken about, to be admired, to be lauded. That's what people put in the place of God and of Christ. And they think it's marvelous. But it's only in the sand, my friend, it's only written on the earth. It can vanish in a night, in a moment. You can suddenly lose it all, I say, by an illness or an accident or by chance or by somebody else or treachery of a friend or some base disloyalty or a thousand and one things and it's all gone. But it's not only insecure and unstable in its very nature and in its essence. There can be no permanence about it. Because it's written in the earth. You see, even if you manage to survive and your name is still to be seen and can be read, even though you've become old, you may have preserved your youth, you paid great attention to it, and you preserved your good looks or whatever it is. I say that even though you may have succeeded, very few do, but some do, even though it's gone as far as that, there is still something coming which will obliterate it completely. Death. The burst of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, await alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. General Wolfe was absolutely right there outside Quebec. He knew that a thing like that was passing and evanescent, though he should defeat Montcalm, though he should get a resounding victory and have a great name. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. So however great the name, there is an end. Yes, but we mustn't stop at that. It isn't only death. There is something beyond death. There is, as I've already said, a judgment coming. And what the Bible tells us about the ungodly is this, that they shall not be able to stand in the judgment. Why? Well, because they are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. That's another picture of the same thing. The name written in the sand and the hurricane comes and it's obliterated or it's like the chaff. The wheat remains. The chaff is simply blown away to nothingness and disappears and vanishes. The ungodly are like that, says the first psalm. They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. 
They shall not be able to stand in the judgment face to face with God. The passing fame and joy and happiness of men and women in sin. Oh, but I have a still further final proof of it. If your name is only written in the earth, well then you know a day is coming when even the earth itself is going to be removed and going to be destroyed. The elements shall melt with a fervent heat. And the world and its way and sin and evil are all going to be burned up and will be entirely destroyed. And all who belong to it and who have lived for it will be destroyed with it. There will be nothing left of them save the memory of their folly and their blindness and their base ingratitude. But oh, and here I see the height of the tragedy. The trouble with such people is not so much that their names are written in the earth and that it's all evanescent and is passing and that they'll have nothing left at the end. The tragedy is this, that while they've lived for all that, their names have not been written in heaven as they might have been. For that is the greatest thing of all. Did you notice how our blessed Lord himself put it to his disciples on that occasion? They came back full of pride and of elation. They said, Lord, even the devils are subject to our to, to, to thy power, to our power in thy name, and they were filled with joy. And our Lord said quietly unto them, In this rejoice not, that the devils are made subject unto you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing. Don't be proud that you're preachers and that you're successful preachers, he says. Don't be proud that you're casting out devils. All that will pass. That's evanescent. Be proud of this. That you are children of God. That your names are in God's family album. That because you're children of God, you're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That you're going to that glorious inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. And that it's secure, that it's inviolable, that hurricanes can't destroy it, beasts can't blast it, man with his bombs can't shake it. It's kept by God and it will never be taken away. Names are written in heaven, indelible, written with God's own hand, with ink that is eternal, world without end. You'll enjoy it in the glory with God and with Christ. That's the thing to rejoice in. There's nothing comparable to that. If you don't believe in God and in Christ and in his salvation, you may make a great name for yourself, as I've said, in this world, but when you go to the next world, you won't be known and it won't have value. It's not in the Lamb's book of life. It won't help you. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. But oh, how wonderful it will be 
that one day you will hear these words. You who perhaps have felt that you've done so little and have been such a poor Christian. How wonderful, how amazing to hear these blessed words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come, enter into the joy of thy Lord. Come, ye blessed of the Lord, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning. Your names are written in heaven. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joy. And lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. My dear friend. What is it you're living for? If it is not, I say again, for God and for Christ, all that you're trusting to will let you down. You'll be put to shame. You'll find yourself empty-handed, having nothing, your name only written in the earth on the sand. Oh, I beseech you, realize it ere it is too late. And turn to the God whom you've forsaken. Acknowledge and confess your sin before him. Tell him you've nothing to plead, no righteousness to offer, no self-defense whatsoever. Lash yourself, condemn yourself, acknowledge it in dust and ashes. And tell him that you're relying only upon the fact that you have heard and that you believe that he has so loved you that he sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary's hill for you, and that you're casting yourself upon that alone. And do that, and then I assure you, you will know that your name is written in heaven, and it's indelible and imperishable. And you will go on, and at the end, enter in. Upon your blessed, glorious, eternal reward. Amen.